Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today is kind of an exciting podcast for me personally because I can remember in my youth growing up in southeast Iowa, but my family traveling, uh, my dad and my brother especially, uh, we would go spend a lot of time in the summer months up in northeast Iowa. Uh, We would travel to Backbone State Park, we would go to Yellow River Forest, we would go to Pike Peaks Hiking Trail up uh, over there by McGregor, and just kind of have fun in those trout streams and camp and and that was a little bit of my introduction into the outdoors and one place that we would always stop would be the Manchester fish hatchery and that's what we're going to be talking about today we're going to be talking about the inner workings of the Manchester fish hatchery what they do there um, how they're funded uh, the history of the hatchery and what fish they're spawning there and uh, where they go when they're done with them. So this is going to be a real awesome, informative um, podcast. And I guess it's a, a little insight into what the Iowa DNR is actually doing. And uh, man, I love podcasts like this because it kind of not only takes me back to my youth, but it also gives us, you know, me as well, a little insight into what they're doing. And I find that uh, I find that uh, very interesting. So before we get into today's podcast, though, we have to thank our our sponsor, Bondurant Custom Furniture. Uh, If you haven't already, please go visit their website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. These guys are really good at what they do. Uh, they take old whiskey barrels and they refinish them into furniture and they can do absolutely anything. And I think it's in the name Bondurant Custom Furniture. These guys are making tables and chairs, rocking chairs, stools, like dressers and chests and coffee tables and clocks. I mean, go to their website and you will see that these guys are doing some really cool things with their materials. BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Go check them out. Tell them the Iowa Sportsman sent you. That's the commercial. That's the intro. Let's get into today's podcast about the Manchester Fish Hatchery. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Dan Rozier. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Now, I think the best way to start this podcast is by you to just talk about what you do and uh, where you do it, uh, what your role is, uh, and uh, that will be a good starting point for this podcast, okay? All right. So like you said, my name is Dan Rozier. I am the hatchery manager for the Manchester Fish Hatchery of the Iowa DNR. We're located just outside of Manchester, Iowa. 
uh, right on Highway 20 between uh, Cedar Rapids or Cedar Falls and Dubuque. We're kind of right in the triangle between Cedar Rapids, Dubuque, and Waterloo. Um, we are the state's cold water broodstock facility, so we are the only trout facility in the state that, that uh, spawns and hatches trout. And we raise three different strains of trout here. Well, three different species of trout. We cover all three. We have uh, brook trout, rainbow trout, and brown trout that we raise here. Um, we supply fish for both the decora and big spring hatchery. And also we stock 13 different streams with, with catchable fish throughout our, our seven-month stocking season. Um, some, of the, some of the big things that we keep busy with year-round um, being how we are the broodstock hatchery, we also raise our um, fish for restoration stocking as well. So our brown trout program, if, if any, of, any of the listeners have been around for a longer time, we used to stock a catchable brown. We, don't, we no longer stock browns as a catchable fish. We stock them as two-inch fingerlings. So if these anglers out there are catching brown trout, they either spawn naturally in the stream or they were stocked as a two-inch fish. So to catch, say, a 10- or 12-inch brown, that fish has been in the stream and grown 8 to 10 inches eating natural food so that that fish has figured out how to survive um, with our our brooks and rainbows that we're stocking as our, our catchables those fish are raised in the hatchery to a 12 to or 11 to 13 inch size range before we stock them out so those fish have been raised on pellets they're a little bit more naive they haven't figured out what to eat in the stream quite yet um, so that's where those those fish are coming from we also stock uh, so we have a domesticated brook and domesticated rainbow that we stock. Those are our catchables. And we also raise uh, south pine brook trout here. Those are stocked at two inches as well, more for a restoration stocking, trying to get those fish out there. So we get the, get the flavors of all the different species and different strains of fish here. Uh, they get stocked in the state of Iowa. Awesome. Now, I have so many questions of what you you know about what you just said, and we're going to break all that down uh, here. But why don't you talk about uh, your role as the hatchery manager, what you do on a daily basis, and how many people work there. So I'll start with the staffing side of it. Um, currently, we have three full-time staff. Uh, so there's there's two technicians and myself, and currently we have one summer person that's a three-month seasonal that's with her with us just here for um, for the summertime. A day-to-day basis for me, I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> This, this week we had, well, like take yesterday, for example, we have a construction project installing a backup generator at the hatchery. We had our scheduled power outage, so I was coordinating between the contractor, uh, making sure the, the generator worked, coordinating with the, uh, the power company for when they switched our power around, um, babysitting to make sure that everything goes well, because we use a lot of electricity here for, our, for different pumps for degassing purposes, and if we're dead in the water, you want to see me start moving really quick, um, have a pump go out or have us lose electricity without us being prepared for it. And so it's every day is, a, is an adventure. Um, a friend put it best that us in hatcheries, we have a lot of balls in the air, so we're juggling all the time. And we don't ever worry about the balls that stay in the air. A lot of times we put our effort towards the ones that fall to the ground. And then we're going, oh, my goodness, I have to take care of the, I have to put this fire out right now. Um, but you just totally forget about the 30 other things that are up in the air. Um, so, But a typical day for us is um, we are an animal rearing facility. So that means that we've got animals on site 365 days a year. We have to take care of them every single day. So there's, there's one staff person at least every day of the week um, that comes in to, to check on things, to take 
take care of the fish to feed them. So we have to clean tanks and feed fish every single day. Um, during our stocking season, which we, when we stock catchables, that runs from April 1st to the end of October, we have nine truckloads of pickup truckloads of fish that leave the hatchery every week. So on a typical, like say a Monday, we might have two trucks leaving. So we come in, we'll feed fish, make sure that the wheels didn't fall off overnight, um, and we have other major fires we have to take care of. We'll get ready to go stocking. We'll load trucks. We'll load fish on. We'll go out and stock for the day. Um, come back, and then if we have to move fish around on station or potentially ship fish to a different station, we'll do that in the afternoon, um, or do any of the facilities care for the for the grounds here at the hatchery. So it sounds to me like you are trying to manage chaos on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay. That's how it feels. I don't know. If somebody, could do it, somebody could do it better. They might not say it's chaos, but it's kind of fun when you come in and, you know what, the, the phone rings and you're off doing something else and it's like, hey, you need to tend to this right away. Okay. Right. You got it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. So be, being flexible is very important. Right. That way. So how many years have you personally been involved with the fish hatchery? So my history is that I started with the Iowa DNR and two, the it was, I think, December 27th of 2010, um, and I worked at the, the Rathbun Fish Hatchery in southern Iowa, right below Rathbun Lake, for yep. four years. And then I, um, the position here at Manchester came open, and I was lucky enough to attain that job, and I believe that was in 2014. Gotcha. So you've so been uh, going on five years. Gotcha. So you are, you are, you've been in fish hatcheries, right, from the start? Yep. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Did, did you go to school to become a, a wildlife biologist specifically for fish or just overall? Yep. Um, I went to Iowa State with the goal of getting into fisheries as I was there. So I have a, I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in animal ecology with an em- emphasis on fisheries from gotcha. Iowa State. Okay. Um, once I got there, I knew that I started, I loved the act of actually raising fish and doing aquaculture. And so I knew that was a path I wanted to go down and, um, becoming a hatchery manager someday was, was a goal from the start at that point. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So you've always, you've always found interest in, you know, wanting to, wanting to work in this. You, it looks like you found, would you call this your dream job? Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. I, my wife, um, we met in college and she's pointed out several times that in college that I even said that I wanted to manage a hatchery someday. And so we, we'll sit sit around after the kids go to bed and reminisce some nights or talk about various things. And, and she's like, you know what, we do have, you do have your dream job, and, and I have nothing I can argue with on that. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'll be completely honest with you. I have, to sh- I have to share a quick story with you. When I was a kid, my dad would take me and my brother. We were from southeast Iowa, um, down by the Mount Pleasant area, and every summer multiple times he would take us up to northeast iowa we'd go to backbone state park we'd go to pikes peak we'd go to yellow river forest and every single time we would stop two places that um osborne nature center and the manchester fish hatchery and i remember absolutely loving that place and just like running around it and looking in the concrete because i don't know it's been a while since I've been there, but uh, back then they had the big concrete uh, outdoor tanks that had all the fish yep. in them. And uh, every time we were there, the guy who was the guy who was worked there, there would be cranes 
that would fly in and try to ca- catch some of the fish. So me and my he he would tell me and my brother, okay, you got to go run and scare those uh, cranes away, be or whatever bird it was, and blue herons. Yeah, blue herrings. There you go. And you got to scare them away because they eat all the fish. So here, me and my brother are running around the fish hatchery yeah. trying to scare those herrings away. And it probably looks about the same as when you were here. 15, 20 years ago. Probably, probably, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, can you give us a little bit of the history uh, of this actual facility specifically? So, and my my year might be off a little bit, but I believe that the feds, the federal fish hatchery system um, started raising fish on the site where I'm sitting right now, I believe it was 1897. Okay. So it, in the late 1800s, uh, extremely late 1800s, there was ground broken here at this at this spot for a federal fish hatchery. It was used as a federal hatchery for trout. Um, I believe it was the late 70s, like 77 or 78, when the federal government decided to pack up. It didn't didn't have enough capacity for their needs, um, and so they they gave this facility. Well, we the state of Iowa traded some land up, I believe, in Kasuth County for the land here at the hatchery. So they traded the hatchery for a wildlife area, I believe, up in Kasuth County. Got you. That's now a federal area. And the state has been here um, raising trout ever since. Um, it's amazing that we've been raising raising fish for about 120 years on the same ground. You look at historical pictures, and originally there was a lot of ponds here at the fish hatchery. Um, when it was a federal facility, we're about five miles from the town of Manchester, and in the late 1800s, they had all the facilities to have people live here and hardly ever leave. Um, they had a mess house. They had, I think, five residences on site. There was a blacksmith shop, uh, stables for horses. Wow. Uh, it was just amazing to think of, like, what has all been here and how many times things has changed other than fish have been raised on this site for so long. Yeah. So is there like a an old box somewhere or a, a filing cabinet or a closet at the facility that's just full of um, old memorabilia or old pictures or like old equipment that they used to use? Uh, probably not enough. Yeah. <laughs> Periodically when we're going through cleaning things, we'll go, hey, look at this. Look at these old pictures. Cool. Yeah. Um, and we need, that's one of our, our, when we have downtime, we need to put some effort into organizing all that just because it's pretty neat, the historical aspect of this place. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So back in the late 1800s, they opened it up. In the 70s, late mid, late 70s, it was handed over to the state of Iowa. Now, let me ask you this question. How is, how is this fish, fish hatchery funded? So we're funded through license sales. Okay. All right. So in the state of Iowa, we need to have, so in order to fish, you need to have your fish, or especially the fish trout, you need to have your um, state fishing license and then also your trout stamp. Gotcha. And so the trout stamps, it helps to fund the trout program. Um, it doesn't, the, the stamp doesn't cover all the costs, but between all the other funding sources, and that's one thing I don't have a great grasp on is where all of our funding comes from, but you're well. You should be well aware of like the Dingle Johnson funds and the federal excise taxes on like hunting and fishing equipment. Yep. Um, so that that helps pay for all of our stuff as well. So 
for argument's sake, the way to put it is that we're angler funded. Gotcha. Because if when when you buy your license and buy your trout stamp, that gets put into equation for some of the federal funding for um, different programs that they have as well from those excise taxes, and then it your 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 license fee comes back a couple times over by the time it's all said and done. Okay, so it sounds to me like buying a fishing license is has a direct correlation to conservation through the efforts that you guys are doing through the fish hatchery absolutely yep without if all of a sudden we had had a a drop of by half the anglers in iowa not buying a license we would have a problem (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and just like just like every state or federal funded agency i take it that uh, you guys have a very strict budget that you have to work with every single year Yep, yep. Our budgets all get a, have to go through uh, the legislature, um, and then it gets gets approved um, for for budget purposes. So there's unfortunately there's a lot of politics that are involved, and that's just kind of the name of the game. But I mean, we are state government, so it's it's government's going to involve politics and yep. being told, hey, you can spend this money, or no, you can't. And yep. You bet. We'll we'll do the best we can with what what we're allowed to do or what we're allowed to spend. Right. And I don't I don't know for this next question. I don't know if you have necessarily tons of details, but has the budget because um, I'm 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 comparing this operation to the number of actual uh, DNR officers that roam the state. You know, you know they get the calls for the poachers, and I remember back in the day there used to be one or multiple officers for every county due to budget constraints and cuts. Um, now we have less rangers covering uh, more ground throughout the state, you know, just because of budget issues and problems. But have have you guys seen a decline in your budget or a steady budget for the past, let's say, five, ten years? I don't have a great handle on that yeah. um, as far as overall. I mean, I've costs have gone up i think our budgets have been somewhat stable but with costs going up we have to do do more with technically less yeah um when i first started in 2010 i want to say that we had like 96 fisheries employees across the state and we currently have i believe somewhere between 8 and 12 positions that are vacant that we're hoping to get filled in the future but fiscally it's not the best decision to fill them right now Gotcha. Okay. So we are we are shorthanded. Even like at Manchester here, I said we've got three full time staff. Uh, historically, we've been staffed at four full time people here. So we're feeling feeling the crunch on that one as well. Yeah. So you just gotta work a lot more hours to get the same stuff done. Well, it's it's picking and choosing what you can work on in the time that you've got to get it done, because overtime factors into that too, and that's not always a good thing, or doesn't save you a whole lot of money some days. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. So let's run through the species again of what uh, fish you're actually raising at the facility. So I should say that we are a cold water facility. Um, What's that mean? Unique to to northeast Iowa. We have a lot of springs as as the water comes out of the ground that remains cold year-round. So in northeast Iowa, we've got some fairly shallow groundwater. um, And it's not every spring, but a lot of springs will stay roughly 50 degrees year-round. I'm from originally from northwest Iowa. Um, there's a lot of, lot of creeks and, and rivers and streams over there as well. There's just not that shallow groundwater uh, influence, so those streams are more of a warm water system. So they'll, in the heat of the summer, 
say the Little Sioux River over in western Iowa, that's going to be 80 degrees. Um, you come over to, to northeast Iowa and say like the Yellow River running in northeast Iowa, in the heat of the summer, it might only get up to like 65 degrees. Yeah. And that's because there's cold water influence. That's what allows us to have trout in this part of the state year-round. Um, that's what allows us to have a fish hatchery where we're at here. So we have three different springs that produce uh, water that we capture here at the hatchery, and we pipe it to the hatchery. Um, our water temperature is very consistent. We range in water temperature from 46 degrees in the dead of winter to 54 degrees in the heat of the summer. So it's on average, we average 50 degrees Fahrenheit year-round here. Gotcha. Um, and that, that's a, a great growing and rearing temperature for trout. That's fairly unique that these, these what we're considering cold water stream or cold water springs, in the heat of the summer, it's cooling that stream. But in the dead of winter, it's actually warming that stream, keeping okay. it from freezing over and keeping it keeping water open year-round, keeping uh, temperatures appropriate for the, the little trout that are incubating in the streams. Um, to keep developing at a at a, a rate that they should, and not potentially uh, die because things get too cold. Gotcha. So the cold water uh, is so consistent that even in the dead of winter, uh, the shallow creeks don't freeze. A lot of them don't. And the further you get from a spring, the more likely you'll see some ice on some of the slower pools. Um, but there's quite a few places that keep open water year round, especially as you get close to the springs. For example, I was given a tour yesterday and talking to folks um, when it was 30 below zero here this past winter, the water at the fish hatchery was approximately 80 degrees warmer than the air. Oh, wow. It looked, it looked like hot springs. It was just this haze of steam everywhere, and that's just because we've got that ground that groundwater and that consistent t- water temperature coming out. Yeah. Okay. So with all that said, the reason that the Manchester fish hatchery uh, is specific to trout is because of the lo- uh, location of, uh, in the state, I guess you could say, of the, the, the natural cricks that are up there. So it's just closer. Yep. And, and our ability to have good quality water um, readily available so that we can capture it and raise fish in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So okay. The pro- proximity wouldn't, it, it helps, but if you don't have that cold, consistent water, because we don't treat our water uh, temperature-wise at all. What comes out of the ground, that's what temperature it goes to the fish. So we're not heating or cooling it at all. It's going straight straight to the animals. Oh, nice. Okay. All right, so you said rainbow, brook, and brown trout, right? Correct. Okay, yep. all right. So let's talk about the process now. Um, the the process of getting the eggs to fertilizing them to raising them to getting them out n- into the natural waters. Yep. So I'll kind of take the take the role of uh, of rainbow trout in our system. They're kind of our bread and butter fish. Okay. Um, a lot of what we put our effort and time into is raising raising our catchable fish for stocking, and that's what a lot of people would recognize the trout hatchery work being. So I'll kind of walk through that. Um, we have one strain of rainbow trout here on on site that's a domesticated strain um and the difference i, I give between the domesticated and the, and the wild and we'll talk about the wild fish here in a minute i hope too um our domesticated fish are more like your cattle or sheep on a farm they recognize humans as being a food source and um they they do really well in, in our confined animal rearing that we do here 
our wild fish, um, even as brood stock, you can walk up to that tank and they're going to swim as fast as they can to the other side because they're more skittish. They're they're not domesticated. It's more like if you put a, a deer in a pen and um, straight from the wild and, and tried to raise it. So with our rainbows, they're a domesticated strain. We start spawning here um, approximately December 15th. Our spawning season for rainbows goes December 15th to uh, about February 15th. We will uh, sort sort off our males and females. We'll, ha- we'll keep them separated so we can check them once a week. A, rain- a rainbow trout and a lot of the trout species, the eggs will be viable inside the female once she ovulates for approximately 13 days. So we'll check them once a week for ripeness over that two-month span. So we'll get in, we'll check for ripeness, um, we'll anesthetize the fish, we'll put gentle pressure on her, on her belly. If eggs pop out, she's ripe. If that's the case, we will put her in a cart take her into the hatchery, and we will um, grab the eggs a little bit later in the morning after we're, after we're done sorting everything out. So we'll go through and sort through our approximate, we keep about 400 three-year-old females for egg production. We'll sort through our 400 females, we'll take the ripe ones and uh, put them on our fish cart, move them, move them into the building, because again, um, if it's between December 15th and February 15th, it's probably not real nice to be working outside all day. Yeah. And so we'll grab those fish, bring them inside where it's at least mildly climate controlled. It's still about 60 degrees, which is way better than a snowstorm. That's right. Um, so we'll have those females inside. We'll, we'll go take our cart and we'll go grab some two-year-old males that we've separated off already. Um, we'll grab those, bring them inside as well. Um, our spawning process, we'll anesthetize them again. We use a dry method. So we actually <clears throat> will anesthetize the fish. So they'll be immobilized. Um, I should say our three-year-old females weigh between four and six pounds apiece. And for those of you that have handled trout, they're a little bit slippery, especially compared to fish like a walleye. Um, So we want these fish immobilized um, asleep because we can handle them. We can control where the eggs go better. I don't like to get beat up by a fish as I'm trying to squeeze the eggs out of her. And if she's flopping around, sometimes if I end up dropping her, if she hits the floor, it's not good for that fish either. So yeah. um, it plays a lot better if we can have them anesthetized. So we'll, we'll, we'll take the eggs, we'll, we'll squeeze the eggs into a net. Um, let's, that lets any water or, or ovarian fluid drip off. If the eggs look good, which 90% of, them, 90% of the time they do, we'll put them in a tub. We'll split semen from the male across that tub. Um, and the neat thing with fish you can combine eggs and sperm, nothing happens. Um, until we add water to that mix, that eggs and sperm aren't fertilizing those eggs at all. Hmm. So we could, we could combine those, the, the gametes, walk away, have lunch, come back, pour water on it, and then boom, all of a sudden the magic happens, fertilization occurs. Yeah, nice. um, we don't do that because we want to we wanna get as high rate of fertilization as possible. But, yeah. um, but water's the magic ingredient there. Yep, yep. Okay. Real in, quick in question. Yep. Why is a three-year-old a three-year-old female like the optimum age for egg production? For our system, a three-year-old is is good. And I should back up. I always forget to add this when I'm talking to people. Trout can spawn many times. They don't die after after they spawn. A lot of people think salmon. They they associate trout and salmon as the same thing. Salmon, once they migrate back to their spawning grounds, they spawn and then they die. Trout can spawn year after year after year. For our purposes, 
our two-year-old females, about a third of them become sexually mature and produce eggs. So we don't really want to use a two-year, or we don't want to count on a two-year-old to produce eggs for us. Gotcha. A, a three-year-old is more guaranteed to have eggs, so we don't have to hold as many brood stock on hand. A three-year-old female is hitting that four to six-pound range. We get approximately 4,000 eggs out of a three-year-old rainbow. If we hold them for another year, um, they just they keep getting bigger and bigger. They'll produce more eggs, but the, the fish will get bigger. A four- to six-pound fish is pretty reasonable for staff to handle. Um, they used to raise them, raise them bigger, but I think if you don't have them anesthetized, it turns into a wrestling match at that point. Gotcha. Um, so how do you then, anesthetize these? How do you put these fish down or trank them or whatever? Uh, MS-222 is a FDA-approved chemical that will put fish to sleep. So it's, it's the same um, if, you, if you need to do a surgery on a fish or implant a transmitter for research purposes to see where that fish goes, you'd use the same chemical, um, and it just it puts them to sleep. It, might, it takes about three to five minutes to put them to sleep. We can squeeze the gametes out of them. We'll put them in a recovery tank, and in another two to three minutes, they're back vertical or back upright, swimming around like nothing happened. Gotcha. Okay, cool. But being, being a FDA-approved chemical and because we're dealing with fish that people can be eating, we have to follow the rules um, that has withdrawal periods and stuff. So we have to monitor that when we anesthetize fish with MS-222, there is a 21-day withdrawal period um, before you can slaughter those animals or put them out in the wild so that people can legally harvest them. Right, right. Covering all the bases there. So after we've got the eggs uh, fertilized and collected, we put them up in our incubators. Depending on species, it takes between 32 and 45 days for those eggs to hatch at approximately 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which our water stays. Um, so those eggs are, we'll put them 10,000 in a tray, and we'll have eight trays in a stack. And so we'll have up to 80,000 eggs in, in a single stack. Um, after that 32 to 45 days, they hatch. Trout are amazing. They've got uh, really, they have their eggs are huge compared to a lot of other fish, and so there's a lot of nutrients in those eggs. They have a really big yolk sac once they hatch, and those fry actually live off their yolk sac for about another, about the same time of incubation, so about another 32 to 45 days. So in the wild, they'd just be down in between the rocks, um, just kind of hanging out after they hatch. Um, as their yolk sac gets smaller and smaller, actually their mouth parts finish developing, and then once their yolk sac is gone, they're ready to eat. So for our purposes in the hatchery, once our yolk sac gets pretty small, we keep monitoring them, and then we move them out into tanks. As soon as we start to see fish up in the water column, it's time to start feeding them, and we use our commercial diet um, and just start sprinkling feed to them, and then they take off from there. They start figuring out what food is. We march them through um, the different food sizes. We, we start off with a food that's about the consistency of flour, it's a fish meal-based diet, but it, it's just ground up really fine for real small fish. And then we go to a diet that's kind of like a fine cornmeal. Then it turns into a, a coarse cornmeal. That's just the consistency of those diets again. And then we get to a pellet, pelleted diet of one millimeter, two millimeter, three millimeter, four millimeter, as we move them, move them through our production scale here at the hatchery. Gotcha. So as these fish start to grow. Uh, from a fry, I guess, then they're transferred outside. It, you've already talked about what they eat. Now, 
what do you do? Just take like take a scoop out of a sack and throw it in there and in the tanks, and that's how they eat, or is it administered in a different way? So in essence, it's basically a scoop out of a sack. We have to monitor. We want to feed as efficiently. We want to be as efficient as we can with our feed. Um, so we we track how many animals are in each culture unit, whether it's a tank or a pond or a raceway. And then we want them to grow at a certain rate with, so we can reach a certain uh, feed efficiency. And so we, we know based on some Excel programs or computer programs that we need to feed X number of fish so many pounds per day. And so we've got our, our feed sheet that we go off of. It's on our feed card, especially when it's outside. And we just, um, it's like, hey, Raceway 4A needs to get 12 pounds of 2 millimeter today. So we'll weigh that out. Um, little fish need to eat more frequently than big fish. So when the fish are small and inside the hatch house, we have automated feeders that go off 22 times a day. So we'll fill them once a day, and then um, the the feeders will take care of the rest by distributing that food. Once we move them outside, we become the automated feeders and have to feed them uh, by hand. And so the little fish will try to get them fed four to six times a day, um, the bigger fish that are closer to catchable size, we'll just feed them twice a day. Nice. Okay. So that's how you raise them. What's your success rate from, I guess, the fertilization part of it to the time where they are, you know, I guess they reach quote unquote maturity or the end of their life at the hatchery? Yep. So when we get them to a stocking size, about half a pound a piece. In through through all the steps from hatching, I believe that we're shooting for. I believe we can attain around a seventy percent return. Okay, gotcha. So seventy seventy percent of all the fish that are fertilized actually survive that entire process. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, is there any other cool information or? Uh, any other secrets or something that you'd like to share with us or you know, just something cool about the, the, the actual growth process? Not necessarily. Okay. Cut and dry. That's <laughs> I've, I've all right. Got the, I've, I've got the coolest job in the world because it's, it's amazing when you've got 50,000 fish that are three inches long in a raceway outside and you sprinkle food over it and it just sounds like a rainstorm because they're all popping at the surface. Trying to eat that <laughs> I remember that. that. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's just—I mean—that's just the part that's kind of an—it's not really a secret, or it's just kind of the ooh-ah factor. And and let's be honest, we're all dorks that work here, and we love feeding fish and watching the animals respond when we do things. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this field. Um, and so that's definitely—I mean, feeding fish is kind of the highlight, I think, of most people's days. Right. Do, do you guys ever fight over it? Like, I, you know what? I'm going to go out and feed the fish, and then you tr- trump everybody because you're in charge, and you say, nope. I'm going to go feed the fish today. Uh, normally I've got, no, normally it's not a fight. The biggest fights <laughs> come in when uh, it's 30 below zero and it's like, hey, who's going to go out and feed? <laughs> yeah. Because that, the the fish are in 50 degree water. They they think, hey, it's Tuesday, but we're sitting there going, Mm-mm, I don't want to go outside today. Yeah, absolutely. So normally we'll just, we'll just tag team it and have everybody go out and blitz it and get down as quick as we can and come back in. But that's the biggest arguments here is, oh, who has to go out and do it today? All right. Now, you've mentioned this next part uh, in the intro, but why don't you talk to us now about when it's time for these fish to leave the hatchery, how are they transported and where do they go? Okay. So out of Manchester, we stock 13 streams with 
um, with our three trout hatcheries, we've got Manchester that we're, we kind of cover the southern southern edge of the driftless area where we've got cold water, and then you've got uh, Big Spring, which kind of covers the middle to the eastern part of it, and then Decorah Hatchery that covers the northern and the western western kind of part of the the driftless area here. Um, so when we've got our stocking season that runs from April 1st to August uh, October 31st. With that, um, we're going, like I said, we've got about nine truckloads that leave a week. We have um, three-quarter ton pickups that have tanks in the back. With our tanks here at Manchester, we just have compressed oxygen bottles and air stones inside those tanks. So we're able to haul approximately 600 fish or about 300 pounds of fish in those tanks in the back. On a typical stocking run, we will be able to put two streams in the back in that truck. So we, on both of our pickups that we use to stock, we have um, two tanks in the back. So there, there's a divider in the tank, so it's two separate compartments. So we'll be able to put up to 300 fish per compartment. Um, we try to coordinate which streams we stock by proximity to each other, so we're not going from corner to corner of our stocking area in a day. Um, we'll load them up out of our raceway. We do checkways on our fish or sample counts, so we'll we'll weigh out, say, 10 to 15 pounds of fish. We'll count how many fish are in those 10 to 15 pounds. We'll do that three or four times to get an average, and then we know how many fish per pound they are. And at that point, say we need 300 fish, and there are two fish to the pound, we'll weigh out 150 pounds of fish and put them on the truck. Gotcha. And so that's all done by crowding them up and netting them by hand and, and putting them on a scale. Um, then those trucks go to the stocking location, drive along the stream, uh, kind of sprinkle the fish out as we go, hit hit the habitat that's the best for those fish to be in, and kind of keep moving and go to the next spot. Gotcha. And what time of year are you doing this in? April all the way through October, and it, to the end of October. So gotcha. um, it's, we've had to postpone some stockings for snow in April. Um, we've had some, some crummy weather in, in October before that's dispersed or changed up some of our stocking. So we stocked in the rain, we stocked in the snow, we stocked in the heat. Um, we get, we get the gauntlet of weather in those seven months. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you're, you're going to a variety of different places. Now remind us again, what, which fish are, are being restocked on a yearly basis that, you know, like, I think you said, was it the rainbow? That is a, is that a wild or is that what you considered a, a cow, basically? So our, our domestic fish domestic, that we stock yes. here are um, the rainbows and then our domestic line of brook trout. Okay. So those, so fish those fish aren't making it through the winter? By and large. Some of them, some of them, some of them will. Um, there's some fantastic fishing here all winter long, but our, our put-and-take fishery, which is our catchable-sized fish, those fish are, it's our hope that they get utilized, taken home by anglers. They don't seem to, they don't seem to do really well and create a spawning population in the streams for whatever reason. Is it because they're domesticated or because their time of spawning doesn't match up with good conditions in the streams in Iowa? I'm not sure why, what the difference is on those. Um, but our, our domesticated fish don't do well with reproducing in Iowa. Okay. All right, so they're basically just there for the angler's benefit. Yep. 
Okay. All right. Now, what about the, the brown trout then? You said that some of these fish, um, the smart ones, are able to adapt to their environment and they're able to um, live out there off the natural world. Are they also able to spawn in the natural yep. world? So yep. we, we have uh, over 50 streams in Iowa that have natural re- naturally reproducing, self-sustaining brown trout populations in them. And so um, part of being the broodstock hatchery, we have to raise all the fingerlings for the management teams that, that request uh, fingerlings. The Decorah area has enough uh, good quality habitat streams that they've actually stopped requesting brown trout fingerlings because most streams that they go to have brown trout in them by natural reproduction. So it's kind of negated my job as uh, working at a hatchery to provide fingerlings because those fish are doing well enough on their own that we don't need to help them. And there's really good brown trout fishing um, in those areas. That sounds like a good thing, right? Right. Absolutely. That's one of the, one of our main goals is, um, is have, have water quality and, and uh, watersheds that are healthy enough that can sustain, can sustain fish populations because let's be honest, mother nature can produce when, when it's, when things are going well, they can produce way more fish than what we can in a hatchery. I mean, think of all the miles, the streams that are out there that they can have a couple thousand fish per mile, and even if only a couple of them get off good spawns, that's way more fish than what we would produce here in the hatchery in a year. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so aside from those aside from those browns, we also do uh, restoration stocking on South Pine brook trout as well. So um, brook trout are considered the only species of trout that are native to Iowa and South Pine Creek up in uh, I believe it's Winnesheet County is one of the last holdovers for those fish so we go to South Pine every year collect eggs or fer- we fertilize eggs on the stream bank bring them back to the hatchery and we try to we'll try to um, stock South Pine fingerlings and other streams to establish populations from that standpoint as well okay awesome so it sounds like that's the end end of the process. Are you ever doing any type of um, natural audits in the uh, creeks, like netting or catching fish, and doing any additional research on the the species? So the way that our jobs are somewhat broken out, and I should say too, with our catchable program, it takes us eighteen months to produce a catchable size fish. Okay. So. The, the fingerlings we have in the hatchery right now aren't going to get stocked in 2019. They'll get stocked in 2020. Okay. So we have fish on station 365 days a year. Um, we never are without without fish, so there's always fish care and, and spawning and things that are going on um, all the time. So back to your question of uh, doing fish surveys and sampling fish in the wild, that's more on the fisheries management side of things. So out of our Northeast District office here in Manchester, we do have a fisheries management team. They're the ones that um, are working on in-stream habitat, going out and sampling streams, lakes, and rivers that are in their district, um, kind of monitoring populations, working with habitat, making the request for uh, what fish species and, and numbers that they want stocked into the, that is going to be healthy for those habitats to sustain. Right. And then it comes down comes down the line to us and says, "Hey, you need to produce X number for this place." Gotcha. Say, okay, we'll get on it. All right. All right. So basically, you guys are the workhorses. Well, we don't want to 
we don't want to pound our chest too much. <laughs> now, you know, when it comes to conservation, there's always need for, um, you know, assistance from the quote unquote civilian world. Are there any volunteer opportunities uh, within the fish hatchery? Yes, and we do we do take volunteers. Um, we are at times a little bit choosy, since how we're a little bit behind the gun for the most part, being short staffed. Um, at times, a volunteer that's going to come for one day is sometimes more of a liability and takes more effort to work with versus somebody that's going to come for more long term. Yeah. Um, we currently have a gal that's been helping us out that she's looking to go back to school, looking to get into natural resources, and she's been coming every Saturday for about oh, probably four months by now. And so she's, she comes and kind of works alongside us on a Saturday, sees what we're doing on the day-to-day stuff, um, and that's been extremely beneficial. But it's, it's just difficult to say, hey, we're going to have a tag-along for one day, um, and sometimes that turns into more of a distraction than anything. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, different types of activities at the hatchery that, let's say, where kids or people can come and learn about what you guys do? So the hatchery itself is open 365 days a year, sunrise to sunset. Um, As you probably have done when you were a kid, um, it's open for self-guided tours. So you can come in. uh, We have, you can feed the fish while you're here. You can kind of wander the, uh, wander the grounds and look at all the different fish and the different raceways and sizes of the fish that we've got in the different units. Um, One of one of our goals that we need to get done here in the next next couple of years is actually get some signage up so that there's more of like an interpretive signs for, hey, this is our spawning process. This is this is how many, what we do with these fingerlings or what the whole basically talking about the process of why we're here more so. Um, so there's you can come, you can can feed the fish, you can see the fish. Uh, we're only on about 20 acres here, and so there is a little bit of a walking trail, but it's not. Um, it's not that much ground that you can cover by the time it's all said and done. Yeah. Cool. So it sounds like uh, there's plenty of opportunities for people to get involved or at least come and check it out. Yep. Yep. And typically with, with, uh, staff here seven days a week, there's a good chance that there'll be some staff around. If you have a couple questions or, or want to ask something where somebody's typically doing something, taking care of fish and, and are around. Awesome. Awesome. Any other information you would like to uh, provide us today? Just to encourage people to go out and fish. Um, It's amazing that we've got, like I mentioned earlier, we've got roughly over 50 streams in Iowa that have naturally reproducing brown trout populations. Um, We're stocking, I believe it's around, it's it's upwards of 45 places with with trout um, throughout our stocking season. So there's an opportunity there. we hit up our we we stock urban areas, so actually we distribute trout across the state for for urban areas in the spring and fall when those warm water systems cool off, just to try to get people an opportunity to get out and experience the outdoors and hopefully connect and and uh, um, and enjoy themselves. And you don't it's it's great when you see families and, and people out fishing. Um, they're out there. We just need to go out and utilize these resources and have a good time with it. Absolutely. And that's how this all continues, right? Once we get the, the uh, younger generations involved so that they grow up wanting to fish and they can pass it down and just continue to do what we've always been doing. You bet. 
All right. Well, Dan, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast and uh, inform us about how the Manchester Fish Hatchery works, the history, uh, the process, all that stuff. You bet. No problem. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Dan for taking time out of his day to hop on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And from a personal point of view, if you ever get the opportunity to go and stop by uh, a hatchery, go do it. Uh, Bring your kids. It's fun. Uh, It's very interesting to see how it's all done uh, from a firsthand view because this podcast uh, can give you a lot of inside information, but it can't actually walk you through the hatchery. So go find a hatchery, go visit it. And uh, if you get the opportunity, maybe you can volunteer as well, because like, like you said, uh, they, they could always use volunteers. Now, huge shout out to our partner, Bondurant Custom Furniture. Thank you very much. Go check out BondurantCustomFurniture.com. And if you are not subscribed to this podcast, please, whether you're doing it through iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts, please subscribe to this podcast. That just lets us get the information in the podcast to you quicker. And if you're not following Iowa Sportsman on Facebook, you need to do that as well. And lastly, you might as well get the magazine. And you can do that by going to iowasportsman.com. And uh, there's information there on how you can subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman magazine. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.